Dr. William Cooper is the Cornelius Vanderbilt Professor of Pediatrics and Health Policy, Associate Dean for Faculty Affairs, and Director of Vanderbilt Center for Patient and Professional Advocacy. We discuss the Coworker Observation Reporting System, CORES, and Patient Advocacy Response System, which uses coworker and patient unsolicited complaints to give physicians feedback. It turns out that a few outlying physicians get the bulk of the complaints, and these physicians also account for a large percentage of complications and malpractice lawsuits. So they have a system for making sure that physicians are getting this feedback and learn about it in a constructive way such that most of them stop being these outliers, or the toxic system that caused them to be such outliers is addressed. If you were being a jerk to your patients or your staff, would you realize that you were an outlier? Would you course correct if you learned that you were that outlier? Dr. Cooper is an internationally recognized expert in medication safety in children. The results of his research, published in JAMA and the New England Journal of Medicine, have led to changes in policy for prescription drugs at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, Health Canada, and the EU, and have influenced prescribing practices for multiple specialties. He served as a member of the FDA's Drug Safety and Risk Management Advisory Committee and recently provided testimony to the U.S. Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labors, and Pensions on the use of psychotropic medications in children. He received his M.D. from Vanderbilt, completed his PEDS residency at the University of Cincinnati, and served as chief resident, and then got his M.P.H. back at Vanderbilt as a fellow in Academic General PEDS where he stayed on as faculty. Dr. Cooper has directed an active research program in pediatric pharmacoepidemiology funded by NIH, AHRQ, FDA, and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. In 2008, Dr. Cooper founded the Department of Pediatrics Office for Faculty Development, where he leads efforts to recruit and retain faculty, address issues of diversity, and foster skills development of faculty related to academic success. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Have you ever considered a different way of practicing medicine? I definitely have. Whether you're burned out, need a change of pace, or looking to supplement your income, Locum Tenens might be the solution for you. Not sure where to start? LocumStory.com is the place where you get real, unbiased answers to your questions. They answer basic questions like, what is Locum Tenens? To more complex questions about pay ranges, taxes, various specialties, and how Locum Tenens can work for you. Go to locumstory.com or doctorpodcastnetwork.com slash locumstory and get the answers. Dr. Bill Cooper, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Well, Brad, it's great to be here. I look forward to talking about something I'm really interested in. So Vanderbilt currently has some pretty comprehensive programs for giving physicians feedback on how they're viewed by their patients and by their colleagues and by their staff. So can you explain what the PARs and the CORES systems are? At Vanderbilt, we found really based on the last 30 years worth of research that the vast majority of physicians come to work every day and do great work for us. They provide really high quality care. They treat their patients with respect. They treat coworkers with respect. The PARS program, which is the patient advocacy reporting system, and the CORES program, which is the coworker observation reporting system, 
are two programs that we've developed to help us identify and address that very small number of individuals who rather than showing up every day and being respectful are associated with a greater number of events and reports related to disrespectful behavior. So it's based on the fact that the vast majority do great work, they show up. What we found in our research is that 3% of physicians account for almost 50% of unsolicited patient complaints received by most hospitals. And we found that a different 3% account for 50% of coworker observations about unprofessional behavior. So the system's based on the idea that if you share information with physicians, they will self-regulate. I'm a pediatrician. I practice here at Vanderbilt. And when new antibiotic prescribing guidelines come out for otitis media or for pneumonia, I look at my practice. I look at the practice of related to the guidelines and I self-regulate. That's the whole premise of this work. So we share information with those colleagues who are in those small groups, that 3%. And we have peers who are trained on how to have respectful, non-judgmental conversations with them to share data and say, gosh, Brad, for some reason, when we look at other physicians here at Vanderbilt and other physicians in your specialty, for some reason, your practice seems to be associated with a greater number of these events. We know that 85% of the time, if we share data with colleagues, they're going to self-correct. And I'm just going to show you some data. When we do that, what we find is we're able to give those physicians information so that they can incorporate it, self-regulate. And we found because these are physicians are associated with greater risk for malpractice, surgical complications, other adverse outcomes, we've had a really profound effect, not only on our culture, but on patient outcomes and on malpractice. How do you collect that data? Like, how do you identify who the 3% are. You said unsolicited reviews. Yeah. So the unsolicited patient complaints come in through, you know, most hospitals have an office for patient relations, or if in the hospital setting or in the clinic setting, a patient expresses dissatisfaction with any element of their care. And we bring in our patient relations specialists to help us do service recovery, to help make what the patient perceived as a problem. We make that right. We found coincidentally that earlier in our research, we found that physicians who had a bunch of those patient complaints that came in through guest relations were also associated with about 45% of our malpractice claims. And that was really the origins of our work. So there's a huge financial reason to be correcting them. Yeah, it's just amazing. And what you find is that when you give people data, if they're able to self-correct, they're going to do it. Now, they may not be happy. I mean, you know, so we share every single patient complaint with our physicians when it comes in. I got a patient complaint once. It was November 14th, 2002. I do remember it. And it was related to antibiotic prescribing. And I worked with this mom because we were trying to reduce our use of antibiotics. So I talked with the mom. I said, hey, let's use this new guideline. We all agreed to it. I forgot the grandmother. So when the mom got home, she talked to the grandmother and the grandmother said, okay, let's go to Walgreens and pick up Susie's amoxicillin. And the mom described what we had talked about. And the grandmother said, no, Dr. Cooper is an idiot. She called Vanderbilt and complained. And I wasn't happy. It didn't make my day that I was trying to follow guidelines. But I thought about it and I said, gosh, when I have those kinds of conversations, I need to adjust my practice to meet the needs of the larger family who may really have strong opinions about this. 
So it changed how I practice, and I haven't gotten more complaints since. So these are all unsolicited complaints. So you're not talking about doing surveys where you're sending out solicited complaints and then collecting. All of this is on all of this is unsolicited. So you're basically just giving people access to their own solicited complaints. And when you're finding that a couple of doctors are outliers, then you have this system in place for having a designated physician, right? It has to be physician to physician. It's not going to be an administrator to physician. A designated physician who's trained to have a conversation to tell them you're an outlier. We're getting a lot more complaints about you. We need you to really look at them. So everyone has access to them, whether they choose to look at them or not is is their own prerogative, but the outliers then are kind of forced to view them and they're forced to reckon with the fact that they are an outlier. And Brad, what's really interesting is that oftentimes we train our messengers on how to deal with the inevitable pushback that people get, right? And so pushback comes in really one of three forms. Dismissal, I don't believe the data, I don't believe who the heck you are, why are you here in my office? Deflection, it's not me, it's the patients I take care of, it's not me, it's the nurses, it's not me, it's the practice environment, or distraction. I would really rather talk about anything besides this. So, you know, go off and give me the analysis of my last 10,000 patients, sorted by language and ICD-10 code and procedure and time of day of triage, and then maybe I'll talk to you. When you give them comparisons and what we're able to do, because once we started this work at Vanderbilt, people started knocking on our door and saying, gosh, can you help us with this? So we have a national collaborative of 60 health systems around 180 hospitals. So we have 100,000 people in this data set. So I can say, here's how you compare to an otolaryngologist, or here's how you compare to a general pediatrician or a nephrologist, which gives them, which takes away that primary pushback about my patients are sicker, my patients complain more. Because look, here's 4,000 OB-GYN doctors, and you're getting more complaints than any of them, and we'll show them visually where they sit on those national curves. Thinking back to intern year, where I was a surgical intern, and I was on a bunch of services that, as an otolaryngologist, why I spent a month on transplant it was basically just scut, but those patients were super sick. And the pattern that I picked up on, and granted, this is a very small N, was that the higher stakes that were involved, the more stress and therefore the more, the shorter fuse there was for the surgeons. So neurosurgery patients in the neurosurgical ICU, these patients are the sickest of the sick, especially if they're admitted to the hospital. These were the tougher times that I had during my intern year, not just because of the workload, I think just because the stress level was higher. Is that the type of pattern that you're seeing? Or it's really just irrespective of field. This is just, if you're a jerk, you're a jerk. I'm going to push back a little bit if it's okay with you. Yeah, please. I don't want to call people jerks because if I call you a jerk, Yes. It's slight in language. And you're not going to listen to me because I just walked in your office and said, Brad, quit being a jerk. What we do find is that when we look at the distribution across all these specialties, among neurosurgeons, among orthopedists, among spine surgeons, among uh, critical care docs, ED docs, it's the, almost the same distribution. Now, some specialties as a group have more complaints, but those outliers are outliers, and there are still 50 to 60% of those high-stake specialties who don't generate patient complaints. Got it. So 
what are the consequences? So here are your complaints. This is what's happening. You have some time to reflect. You have some time to change your ways. We're going to reconvene in X period of time, see how you're doing. What happens from there? So what happens for both PARs and CORs, the individual reports, either a CORs report, which is a coworker report entered into an electronic safety system about unprofessional behavior or those patient complaints that we've talked about, the, each time each one of those comes out, we just share it. Non-judgmental, just, gosh, we got this report. I know there's two sides to every story, either the patient or the coworker, but just hope you'll think how it could go differently. 97% of those single events don't happen again. That 3% who count for the disproportionate share, they get what's called an awareness intervention because we want to make them aware of a pattern. That peer talks to them. 85% of those get better, which leaves us with 1%. You move up the pyramid, as it were, to if you have a couple of awareness interventions and you're not improving, now your boss depending on your relationship and where you work, that might be your service chief, it might be your CMO, it might be your chief of staff. If you're contracted, it might be the president of that group. Wherever you work, that person then sits and says, gosh, Brad, you've had several chances to self-correct here and you haven't, you've gotten data. I'm seeing here, I'm looking at the times where you've had these conversations with your peer and it didn't get better. I'm confident this is going to work out for you, but what we're going to do is come up with some things that we may need to do to help that get better. So in a medical staff setting, that might be a focused professional performance evaluation or corrective plan, but still all informal. We're not moving anywhere into sort of formal action at all yet, because 75% of those people get better too. When you look at their practice, so I think of a physician once who was identified in PARS having a bunch of patient complaints. Turns out he was the Monday morning proceduralist of the day. So he got to work every Monday. He had 30 consults to do or 30 procedures to do based on the weekend's consults. And they said, hey, get those all done. And we need you to be done by about 12, 15 because we have to turn the lab over. What do you think happened? Patient complaints about didn't spend time with me, didn't come back to talk to me about the procedure. I felt rushed, didn't use enough sedation, didn't know me. When he got to that higher level, his service chief looked and said, this is just a bad system. Having one Monday morning person doing 30 procedures, that's just not going to work. So the service chief put in place two different people to do that, moved this person to Wednesday. Five years later, he's gotten zero complaints. So it's a way of looking to say, what can we do as an organization to help? We also find that these are really important surveillance opportunities for us, for those individuals, not that they won't self-correct, but if they can't. So we've looked and identified that physicians with burnout are much more likely to have high PARS scores. We also have looked and found that you can identify physicians with cognitive impairment based on the words their patients use in these patient complaints. So really thoughtful healthcare organizations use all of this information to help engage our colleagues who for whatever reason, they're not enjoying this. So it's not, people don't intend to come to work and make their patients unhappy. But we wanna use every chance, first their self-regulation, and then whatever we can put around them to help them be successful so that they can have the best chance for this to work out for them. Now, you had mentioned that these physicians that are identified tend to have worse outcomes, right? Not only is it malpractice, which 
is intuitive, right? If you're unpleasant to patients, they're more likely to sue, but they have worse outcomes. Why do you think there's that connection between the two? So we publish and we work a lot with surgeons because surgeons love research and they've got great data. So I'm a pediatrician, but I love to work with these folks because they've got amazing data. I'm also an epidemiologist. So we've published a couple of studies showing that patients whose surgeons have a bunch of PARS patient complaints are significantly more likely to suffer complications. A separate study found that patients whose surgeons have a bunch of CORs, those coworker reports, are also significantly more likely to have complications. And what we think is it works through the effects of these behaviors on people paying attention, asking for help, and speaking up. Because there's been other studies that have been published in the past couple of years that show, this is a study that Katz had all published, that if OR teams are exposed to not a cussing, spitting, throwing surgeon, but just a slightly impatient and dismissive surgeon in a simulation, those anesthesiologists are four times more likely to underperform. In an ICU setting, Riskin showed that if you expose teams to mildly rude behaviors, they are significantly less likely to seek help, they're significantly less likely to pay attention, and they're significantly less likely to communicate with each other. And they also, as a team, perform worse on diagnosing a problem and treating a complication. So it sounds like a matter of attention, right? Because if you care about your team, then your team is going to care about you and your, by extension, your patients. But if it's, if it seems like you don't care about them, then they're less likely to be invested in the same way and not intentionally even it's just how we're designed. And I'm worried. So remember your intern days when you were on those teams where there were maybe some individuals who weren't as pleasant as others, when you were about to round, you're about to do a case with them. When you were about to speak to them, you may have been more focused on whether they were going to blow, what was going to happen, than really the task at hand. Picture a nurse in an ICU. Picture a circulator in the OR. These things, when if I'm more worried and I'm paying attention to where you are in the room and what you're about to do, I'm not paying attention to my patient. Yeah, I'd be much more focused on the patient if I were worried about disappointing them than if I was worried about, like you said, whether or not they're going to blow. Yeah, I can see that. So are there any physicians that you've encountered, I'm guessing the answer is going to be no, that are really untouchable with regards to these consequences? There are always, when we start with new healthcare systems, there are individuals who are perceived to be in a protected class. They either generate a bunch of revenue they may have provided care for somebody who's really important on the board or for the CEO. They may, in a research setting, have a bunch of research grants. And in the past, before an organization really takes accountability seriously, there's oftentimes we run across situations where someone's in a protected class. In order for accountability to work, though, you can't have that. And so what we find is that organizations that are really committed to high reliability treat everybody the same. And so, of course, we've run across that situation because it's hard. These are complex decisions. Somebody who generates a bunch of revenue for you in tight times, you're going to think twice. 
But what we find is that in order for a true accountability model to work, you got to have the right leadership commitment. You got to have the right values. You got to be able to count it. There's a lot of infrastructure that has to be in place. And what we say is, what is this practice? What is this hospital? What does this health system want to be when it grows up? Because I'm telling you that not addressing these individuals is getting in your way. If you want to do that, you have to say, we're going to treat everyone the same. Now, the deal here, Brad, is that if you think about it, if 85% of people get better, that's a really tiny number that are going to rise to the top. And I've yet to see when someone chose to separate from an organization because they did not self-correct. I've yet to see an organization that suffered significantly. And what happens is we have, we're in enough hospitals that when someone leaves under those circumstances where they're not improved, they often show up at one of our other hospitals and usually within about three or four months. And then what happens? They show up in our systems, right? So they go, they move to that new hospital and they start generating patient complaints and coworker concern right away. So it doesn't, the moving doesn't fix it. Yeah. And then the organization's stuck with this brand new person who's generating all sorts of challenges for them. If an organization is going to bring a system like this, do they need to be prepared to fire someone? And if they're not prepared to do that, if they're not prepared to take that ultimate step, can you still initiate a program like this? So we come in and we'll tell them, I'll say, look, I don't tell them they're going to have to fire somebody because it's what we believe is that the people they identify are going to get better. But we do tell them they may have to face some difficult decisions. So, for example, it may very well be that I'm not going to fire that really high revenue generating proceduralist. But because it's not safe for them to practice at the level that they are, because so busy that they outstrip the resources, they're the people who finish their scope, they go down and get the person out of holding and move them before the room's turned over. They are the people who don't return phone calls. Those things end up being, regardless of how much technical and cognitive competence you have, people outstrip their resources and then it's not safe to practice. So the difficult decisions may be saying, okay, look, we're going to put a ceiling on your productivity in terms of your OR block time or your procedure room time, because we want you to be successful. So it might not be about even about firing someone, but given what you're saying, even if it sounds like even if they weren't prepared to take that ultimate step, you still have all of everyone else in between that's benefiting from the system. So you don't need to be able to take that step. And you can even finagle that step. You can externally fiddle with their schedule so that they're not under so much stress. Not So they still may generate complaints, but fewer because they're under less duress. Absolutely. That's that corrective stuff right there at the top, not a punitive, I'm going to send you to charm school as a punishment. More modules. Make you to assign modules. It's like, what are we going to really do to get this to work? So we may put coaching in place. And oftentimes a clinical coach will recognize, I see what's happening. Your patients feel like you're rushing through all your visits. And it turns out that you literally stand with your hand on the doorknob during all your visits and you never sit down. That may be why they perceive that. And so giving them those resources and on the coworker side, typically it's around understanding how, what you do has an impact on people. When you look at nurse retention, nurses leave the workforce, leave hospitals and leave the profession altogether. 
In an exit interviews, 40% of that is due to coworker, including physician behavior. So this treatment has a, a, an adverse effect on our ability and it costs most hospitals around $50,000 a nurse to replace every one of those nurses. So it ripple effects throughout the entire health system. How much of this do you think is the Hawthorne effect, right? Which is just for the listeners that someone modifies behavior because they know they're being, or at least believe they're being observed. So if they were to get feedback from you, right, or throughout through the system, modify their behavior, and then they change health systems. So they're moving cross country. They're in a health system that doesn't have anything like this. Do you think the changes in behaviors are going to persist? Or it doesn't even matter. That's interesting. So you bring up an interesting point, but we know I've got good follow-up data for up to 15 years for a longest follow-up for physicians who were originally identified by PARS, got that feedback and self-corrected. And 94% of those have stayed good because they often will say, no one's ever told me this before. I never knew this was how I came across. I thought I was advocating for my patients, but now that I understand, and I can remember, and you may have had this, like early in my career, I was scared to death. And I was often impatient if I would walk in a unit, if the oxygen bags weren't in the right place, I would get really upset because that was our policy. I found that I was really unhappy when I was doing that. And certainly the people with whom I was speaking were unhappy. And without it rising to the level where I needed an intervention, I just one time, one of my nurse colleagues had a cup of coffee, you know, what that informal speak to each other. She said, Dr. Cooper, it just seems like you're not really enjoying your job because every time you come in the unit, you just seem to be really unhappy. It was like, oh my gosh, she's right. I was thought I was advocating for my patients. I thought I was doing the right thing, but it turns out I was creating more problems than, than it really was solving. And once I changed that, I thought, gosh, I need to figure out how, because I own this, right? So if we've put in place a system that allows those oxygen masks to walk, then I own the solution instead of just coming in and pointing out the problem all the time. So I changed as a leader and it really affected how I behaved and how I performed. And what's this now 25 years later? And it still stuck with me. That lesson stuck with me that I now apply and other things I do. Yeah, in my own life, something not even medically related. My wife takes most of the pictures in our family. And I realize in a lot of the pictures when I'm playing with my kids, I'm not smiling. And it's not because I'm not happy, because I'm just not a smiley guy. But then without actually seeing it for myself, nobody likes to hear smile more. But when I saw it for myself, I realized how it comes across and how I may be coming across to my kids. And now, a little strange, I have to make a conscious effort to make sure that I am actually giving them that visual feedback that I'm enjoying their company. So without that, not like I'm going to get transported to another family where it's going to happen a different story and a different whatever. But yeah, I can see how you need to hear it. But part of it, to your point, is how the message is, right? You just called it the cup of coffee. So tell us how those conversations go. How do you make sure that you're actually being heard. You're not putting someone on the defensive. You're not calling them a jerk, which is the easy thing to do, but not the effective thing to do. So tell us how this happens. A cup of coffee. So we train all these peers on how to have these conversations, how to deal with pushback, how to frame it, how to keep it brief. A cup of coffee is for a single event, right? So let's talk about a course interaction. It's one thing. It's not the last 20 sins you've committed. It's that single event. And it usually takes about 
60 to 90 seconds. And I might start, I might say, if I could use your Brad's example, Brad, if you have a second to talk, sure. And I'd say, gosh, Brad, I just wanted to hear at High Functioning Hospital, we're committed to treating everybody with respect as a part of our High Functioning Hospital values. And Brad, for some reason, I got a report about an interaction you have with one of the nurses in the post-anesthesia care unit. And in the report, it said that she called with a question and you said, quit call me with these stupid questions. It's all written in the post-op note. You know, and Brad, I know sometimes it can be frustrating and I get that there's two sides to every story. And Brad, all I wanted to do now is just share this with you and just hear your side of the story. You'll share your side of the story. You may use dismissal, deflection, or distraction. I'll say, gosh, I hear what you're saying. And that does help me understand a little bit more. I really appreciate that. Now, oftentimes what we find, I'm pretty sure that if you can think about, is there any part of the way that conversation went down that might go differently from your side? And if so, I just hope the next time that somebody calls from PACQ, you might reflect on that. And I hope the conversation goes differently. I, we appreciate you so much. You do such great care for us here. And you're such an important colleague. Every time I send patients to you, they have such a great experience. So I really appreciate what you do. I also want to thank you for spending time with me today. Listening so that people feel like their side of the story is heard. Acknowledging, but also pivoting back to yes and telling someone they're stupid. It's just not consistent with what we're trying to get done here. And not consistent with who you are as a person. Yeah. I love sending patients to you, Brad. Patients come back and tell me that you are an amazing surgeon and that you you talk straight to them. And for some reason, this interaction didn't go down like that. Because I'll be honest, I was surprised. Does it ever happen that they know who the doctors are that are coming in with a cup of coffee? So here it is, the same few doctors over and over, clipboard in one hand, cup of coffee in the other. They know how the conversation is going to go. They know that someone's going to come over, blow a little smoke, tell them what they did wrong, blow a little more smoke. And then like that they know that they pick up on the pattern and it loses its effect. If you do a cup of coffee really well, they may not even know it. So I've been doing this for 15 years. I've been sharing cups of coffee, not only through my role in these professionalism programs, I chair Vanderbilt's professionalism committee, but I do it anytime there's something that gets in the way of what we're trying to accomplish. I delivered a cup of coffee earlier today. In that conversation, all I'm doing is just talking with you about something. It's a form of giving people feedback in the moment, close to the time, and giving them a chance. And we also intentionally don't have our messengers be positioned. They're the ones that people go hide behind the parking lot pillar from. So we spread the work out so that it's not, we don't have like the cup of coffee squad rifling out through the hospital because these are pretty rare events, right? 90% of physicians in a healthcare system never get a single one of these. 7% get an occasional one. And that 3% account for almost half of them. So when you think about how that plays out, then we're not going to have all these conversations, but it's also true that I am the first person who writes a congratulatory note or letter when something goes well. We have a button in our electronic event reporting system that we call good catch. So if someone is really professional or they take great care of a patient or they're really kind to a coworker, we push those out with the same messengers. So they show up, we copy a note to their boss and say, gosh, thank you so much for your commitment to our Vanderbilt credo, our set of values, because that makes a difference. If they win an award or publish a good paper, 
I'm shooting them an email. And one of my mentors was a part of this early work at Vanderbilt and is still a really significant leader said, don't be just the bad news person. Make sure that you're also balancing it with good news so that people get that when you show up and you're having a conversation with them, you're sincerely, because if I don't like you, I'm not going to start the conversation by saying, Brad, I love you. You're such a great guy. I'm going to be sincere. I might say, you are technically and cognitively so skilled, (laughs) right? So we train our messengers. I said, if you don't like them, number one, you may not be the best messenger. So you're not going to send that brand new surgeon in to talk to the highest ranked person in the hospital. You're not going to send in our environment, an assistant professor who started three months ago in to talk to an endowed chair. So we pair them pretty carefully with, I've got about hundred and I think about 180 messengers at Vanderbilt. And so we assign them based on the likely, their relative connection, but we don't send somebody's best buddy in either, nor their sworn enemy. So if I'm going to really benefit because I get your Monday morning or Tuesday morning or a block time, I'm not going to be your messenger because I've got a conflict. Now, through the patient reported system, these aren't online reviews. Just to be clear, this is not someone who's going on to Yelp or Google and saying, I waited for 45 minutes and blah, blah, blah. These are someone who is committed enough to complaining that they're actually phoning the organization. And actually, is it? just telephone calls or these are written complaints as well? Like how are they being collected? So there's a lot of ways that these data come in. They may be phone calls. They may be in-person visits. So if you're having a patient having a meltdown on one of your inpatient units or in the ambulatory surgery center and you try to address it or the nurse manager or administrator tries to address it and they can't, lots of health systems have these folks who can actually engage in the moment and address it. They'll enter a report about that interaction and what the patients said in their own word. These come as letters, which are the grievances that we hear about at the hospital level. They may come as emails. If somebody says something and they ask to be interviewed based on their patient satisfaction survey, we'll reach out to them. And we don't include it unless they say, I really want to talk to somebody. You've identified it's that activation energy. If I'm unhappy enough with my care that I reach out and talk to that multi-specialty group administrator or the patient relations group for a hospital, that is the marker. And as you suggested, you see why it's related to malpractice. So if I'm unhappy enough with my care, coupled with a known complication even, you can see why that would play out to increase risk for med mal. And for the core system, how do you make sure that the staff feels safe enough, to be honest, right? Because some of us are on enormous teams and Let's say you have tons of OR time, so you work with lots of different people. So there can be some anonymity there in the large numbers, but some of us work with pretty small, intimate teams, in which case, if there's a complaint, you know exactly who it is. So how do you make sure that they feel safe enough to complain and be honest and be really truly anonymous and protected? So one of the things we do is that in the training for messengers, and I've used this strategy on several occasions. If I sense that you're at risk to go retaliate, I'm going to add a phrase to our cup of coffee conversation. And I'm going to say, Brad, you're okay with me. Continue to use you as an example. We're not talking real world stuff here. But Brad, I hear that you think you might know who entered this report. Oftentimes what we find is people who are observers of these behaviors are the ones who enter them. So it may not be the person you think it was, but more importantly, Brad, I just want to make sure, because I know you know this, 
But here at this hospital or here in this group, we have policy about retaliation. And if for some reason, a reasonable person thinks that anything you do would be interpreted as retaliation, requires us to do all sorts of stuff. Brett, I know you know that, but I just want to remind you this once. And that's a mitigation strategy just to put that person on notice. Because if they do retaliate, the back end of that is that we have a very swift and consistent response. That person moves from cup of coffee up to their boss sits with them. We put a corrective plan in place if we find it to be true. And that's how we get cult psychological safety. People won't speak up if they don't have psychological safety and they don't trust that the organization is going to do something about it. And so what we do is we respond to those complaints and thank them for sharing their concerns and let them know we'll be addressing it and to let us know if anything happens. But more importantly, what they see is that Bill Cooper suddenly came in the nursery and stopped complaining about the oxygen masks. They observe that the behavior improves, and then they're going to trust that we actually are doing something about it. And we don't say, guess what? Hey, we took Brad out and publicly shamed him in front of his colleagues. They just know because you're one of those 97%. That all it took was just making you aware that somehow that came off differently than you intended it, and you're going to self-correct. We're going to be wrapping up soon. I'll string these two questions together and you decide whether or not you want to answer them at the same time. So one is, let's say you have a small practice, right? Five physicians, which in some places would actually be a large practice, right? Not a giant health system with tons of data points, but just a couple of people. And you want to implement a similar system or you move to a different hospital system. They've hired you and you've done this, right? As a consultant, but they've hired you to come in and build this system de novo. So where would you begin? So one small system, one large system from scratch. I'd start, Brad, at the values. What does this place want to be? What do they currently have in place to address any of the five who create problems for us or any of the thousand, five thousand, whatever size the system is? What do they have in place? And then are the leaders committed to doing the right thing by this? Is it a part of the values? And how do you count? Because if you've got five docs, you can know whether I seem to be having this conversation with you, Brad, more than any of our other partners. And if it's true, I may say, gosh, it just seems like this is a pattern. And if it persists, I'm going to say, gosh, let's come up with a plan. Similarly, in a larger system, we're going to put in place the policies and the bylaws and all the things that help support professional accountability so that we can help. And it's about moving the needle. So I never like to say, oh, gosh, Here's where you are and you got to be perfect. It's okay. Can we do something to address some of the major challenges you're facing now? Let's address those and get a little better. And then we'll move here and then we'll move here and then we'll move here. Because at the end of the day, what I do when I come to work every day, I'm committed to doing what I can to make medicine kinder and safer and more reliable. And if we can put things in place that allow our physician colleagues and our MA colleagues, and our nurse colleagues the opportunity to focus on taking care of patients and not worrying about whether I'm going to blow, we're all going to be better off. I love it. I really appreciate your time. Bill Cooper, is there any place that people can find you online if they want to, if they want to start to emulate your system, they want to hire you as a consultant, where can they find you? So we're on Twitter, VUMC CPPA. You can also find us on the website, Vanderbilt CPPA. I'm pretty easy to find on Google too, but we always, we love to talk to people. So call us, hit us up on Twitter anytime. Thanks so much for your time. Great. Thank you. Such a great show with Dr. Cooper. 
But before we finish up, don't forget to visit locumstory.com or drpodcastnetwork.com slash locumstory to get real, unbiased answers to all your locum tenants' questions. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.